Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. And we'd also like to pay our respects to the elders of the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of the Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from our houses, but with some help from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex. Together with my fellow familiar strangers, Tim. Hi, Alex. Carolyn. Hello and Simon. Hello. Now, before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. All right, and speaking of the Facebook chats group, the first thing I'd like to have a bit of a chat about today actually came out of a cheeky question I asked the group. I'm writing a paper and I was just thinking about the idea of academics and other professionals as entrepreneurs. And I asked the chats group for sources, but it got me thinking, do you guys feel that academics and professionals more widely, we're all kind of having to become entrepreneurs of ourselves? Do you know what I mean? I don't know what you mean. I think you should explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Sprung. (laughs) Well, because what I was thinking is doing this sort of seminar circuit, but doing it really with an eye to sort of building your own brand, becoming in my case, the Ecuadorian bureaucrat guy. In other people's cases, specialist on associativity, etc., etc. And at the same time, you're sort of bouncing in and out of government, maybe to NGOs, constantly doing just like little certification programs. So like tooling up and having to sell yourself, become your own brand. You invest in yourself and hopefully reap the rewards of those investments. And I was wondering whether, is this becoming like just a big phenomenon? Are we all becoming entrepreneurs? I suppose it depends on what your specific definition of an entrepreneur is. Because I feel like it's changing slowly. I think previously it was much more about those, like in business talk, it was really about taking those risks and seeing if things pay off. And then if it's not moving on to the next thing, or perhaps once it's reached a certain point of success, you sell it, move on kind of thing and go to the next idea. But I think it's both like a little bit to do with sort of social media. And I think the idea of an entrepreneur being skewed a little bit through sort of like being self-employed, as well as just perhaps a general movement towards the gig economy and contracting as well. And more people are kind of living, I guess, this entrepreneurial lifestyle almost. And the lifestyle is also something that is being sold to people. And I think it's kind of blurring a little bit. But I don't know, couldn't we say that entrepreneurism is kind of a lifestyle? Not just like, oh, yes, I'm a small business owner, but it's that sort of like, yeah, I like take risks and I have novel inventions and do crazy stuff. You know what I think of when you say entrepreneurs' lifestyles, like all of those people on YouTube that do those very like day in the life morning routine videos where they're all getting up at like 4 a.m. to do uh, like who is at Wim Hof uh, and doing the ice baths. (laughs) 
Sorry, that one went over my head. Oh, that's a thing. That's a dedicated, like, niche community. They're all running online digital entrepreneurship, like, kind of businesses. A lot of them are selling entrepreneur, like, courses. They're an entrepreneur mm-hmm. telling, teaching people how to be other entrepreneurs. And it's like that a sounds whole like thing an entrepreneurial content. pyramid scheme, but yeah, <laughs> a little, a little. I don't know, Simon. You are in the academic job market. Are you building your brand? I mean, I have to, right? But I feel like it's the worst part of academia. It's the kind of late capitalist precaritization of academic work that requires you to build a brand like this. And I feel that in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to do it. You could just do research and do teaching and stuff. But obviously that's not possible anymore. And universities are increasingly businesses as much as they are institutes of higher education. But do you really think it is that new? I mean, you know, Marx had a brand. Say what you will, you always knew what Marx was going to talk about. Hegel the same. I feel like that's just the kind of post hoc rationalization of capitalist terminology for things at the time that we wouldn't have referred to as brand. Sorry to just butt in real quick, but I think there's a difference between a niche and a brand. Your brand is built around your niche. Yeah. Oh, ooh, I think we have an entrepreneur in the Zoom chat, just saying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, Simon. So then, is there anything we can do to get out of this? Well, we can destroy capitalism. That would be my like starting point. But I don't think that's I think that's a realistic prospect in the kind of next five to six minutes. So I think at the moment we just have to go with the flow. I mean, it's hard, right? Like, I think there are things that you can try and do to resist the, inc- the increasing corporatization of universities and so on. But at the same time, I'm in a position where I don't have a permanent job. And part of my work in the familiar strange is about building, as you say, like a brand for myself. So I just have to keep doing what I'm doing in the hope of one day being in the position to be able to change it for other people. But is that a realistic prospect? I honestly don't know. No, but Tim, I don't know. Are you building your brand? Do you feel like you're an entrepreneur of yourself? I think it depends on how you define an entrepreneur. Like I think in the sense that we're talking about. I mean, what we're really talking about is branding. And I mean, that really goes back to, I guess, distinguishing ourselves from others. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in some ways it could be seen as a necessary evil in the sense that we're all trying to compete with others. There's these multiple platforms that, you know, we're availing of now and the opportunities that come with them. And so, in that sense, I guess, yes, I am branding myself as uh, I think all of us on this on this podcast. I feel like we're doing this the wrong way around, though. We should be anthropologizing entrepreneurism as opposed to entrepreneurializing anthropology. Mm. Mm. Fair. So some of the reading I've been doing on entrepreneurism involves Freeman and Ong, who talk about entrepreneurism as kind of a set of logics that are associated with neoliberalism and are, according to them, spreading out through the world. They take different forms in different countries, so it's not homogenous. But again, these ideas of yourself as this like life project that needs to be invested in, managed, you take risks, you get rewards, etc., etc. Is that a creeping logic through the world, particularly through professional middle classes? I feel like that's a very you question. That is my brand. It is your brand. There you go. I think you're, I mean, I think you're the nail on the head of Alex, or at least in your, your kind of paraphrasing of these academics, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, they hit the nail. I just like pointed it out. Yeah, exactly. That's all, that's, that's all we ever do is point out other people's good work. Like when I was in Iran, the people I was 
working with a lot of them more into this kind of and I have never I never really thought about it as entrepreneurialism but there was a, a notion that one could participate in things like we, what we would say are fast money schemes and so on and I think a lot of that came through this kind of creeping I mean it sounds like that horrible right-wing meme about creeping Sharia this idea of like a creeping neoliberalism I think is quite interesting and it's definitely permeating societies around the world and like you said it's Alex it's not homogenous it doesn't appear in the same way everywhere but it's definitely an elements of a kind of individuated society in which these individuals are kind of cutthroat in the competition against each other is definitely a particular kind of neoliberal logic to it. So that makes me think about social entrepreneurs and I was just wondering what you guys thought about social entrepreneurialism in the sense that there's obviously someone, an individual or an organization has identified a particular opportunity whereby they're taking a risk related to some kind of different social or environmental problem and seek to propose a solution by means of some kind of entrepreneurial initiative, whether that be to promote some kind of social transformation or kind of environmental change or something like that, that may well be that it generates profit at the same time. Is that still entrepreneurialism in the sense that we're talking about or is that something else well i think that's a really interesting question because on a certain level it absolutely is right like it's taking risk it's investing possibly in yourself in others etc etc but at the same time and in a certain level i suspect it does have a sense of individualism to it a lot of those schemes often do work uh encourage people to you know buy this thing to help themselves or we're going to sell this product that's going to add an affordable price to help poorer people achieve whatever. But at the same time, that is definitely not the cliche each person out for themselves. As long as I can make money, it is good. And that is the way it should be. So it does start to blur the line. But I think also it can be a bit of a mask for people who do perhaps still think that way but want to brand themselves as perhaps someone that is a bit more socially ethically conscious because it's a hot commodity uh i'm very skeptical (laughs) because it is really hard to identify when say a business is truly say a not-for-profit or a like a social enterprise of some description as opposed to someone who is just work fishing so that's all we've really got time for on that topic As I said, we're trying a new format, so we're only going into two topics this week, and it's time for us to hit that second topic. Tim, you wanted to talk about research ethics and COVID-19? Yeah, Alex, it's something I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. As anthropology, or at least medical anthropology, is really concerned with human rights, there's this obligation that we have to address the needs of others. And I guess it got me thinking about the unease with which medical anthropology sits within the world of biomedicine. And I was just wondering, as social scientists, whether as anthropologists or sociologists, how do you propose that an ethical framework would fit within biomedicine? Or what would an ethical framework for anthropology look like? It's a tough one. That is something that's really debated. I can tell you... Almost every anthropologist I know who's had to deal with research ethics, almost all of them hate it because it really feels like it's not tailored towards anthropology. So a lot of anthropologists will just go, 
ignore it. Just do whatever you can to like get the paperwork done and do whatever. I don't know, Simon, what was your ethics proposal like? I don't know. I shouldn't even really talk about my ethics proposal. It was so long ago and so fraught. Yeah, I mean, the advice that we were kind of given was ethics was something that we had to manage, that anthropology wasn't amenable to the kind of ethics that came out of the bioethical, biomedical model. And that as a result, yeah, you just had to deal with these people who worked in, in that kind of model in the most kind of perfunctory way. But I think, I think more generally, anthropology has a kind of, I mean, anthropology does have an ethical frame. And I think it's becoming more and more stressed in the kind of 21st century reflexive turn that anthropology is going through at the moment with a kind of anti-colonial movement and things picked up out of the kind of Black Lives Matter movement and so on. I mean, anthropology has, an, has had an activist bent for a long time, but I think there's a more, there's a more kind of pronounced activist moment going on at the moment. But I also think it's a different activist event because I think more and more our research participants can talk back. They're talking the same language. They can talk not just back, they can talk to others. They can say, you know what, that person totally screwed me over in their research. It isn't like that at all. Whereas even early activist anthropology, you (laughs) were talking to the colonial government. Uh, You were talking to the colonial government on behalf of your research subjects no there's a more pronounced and a different kind of activism that's happening now and it's more about collaborative processes between people between the people who are who are supposedly doing the research and the people who are being objects of research and then that binary no longer really kind of functions anymore particularly because a anthropologists at least should be more reflexive about their own positionality vis-a-vis others and b because the idea of having research like subjects is something that is anathema to a lot of the things that are kind of more modern, more contemporary anthropology is trying to do. I don't know, Tim, what are some of the ethical dilemmas you've encountered in your master's? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have in medical anthropology is the fact that ethical guidelines are generally like premised or based on this medical or biological model of research. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that variables in research can be controlled and forecasted and you know with precision at least in terms of clinical trials and such and i think that those those don't really apply in the same way to medical anthropology i guess like that from what i'm getting from everyone's conversations it's it's hard to put a blanket set of ethics over anthropology as a whole in general because there's so much that is very arbitrary about each and every individual person's niche, to take it back to the last conversation a little. I've said previously, I think it's because I've always thought a good model for anthropology's ethics is your managing relationships. I mean, what happens if 10 years after you've done your field work and you're, I don't know, writing articles or doing whatever, most of your, your thesis is done and all that, somebody comes back to you and says, Alex, you know what? I really wish I hadn't. I think I said some stuff to you that I'd actually prefer to keep on the down low. With the biomedicine thing, it's like, well, you signed the form. The study is up. It says like you're past the withdrawal date, done. Is my understanding, I've got to say. I'm not a doctor. Apologies to doctors out there if that's not how that works. But Or somebody says, you know, oh, Alex, like, I know you said I said you could like take down those details, but actually that got back to somebody who I didn't think you'd get back to we need to kind of smooth this over. But those are the issues that, how do you manage that? Well, I, I don't know, like, I was just going to bring my experience because I haven't done specifically any fieldwork research, although I'm about to, which is very exciting. But 
in my undergrad, we did a lot of work around. So I did uh, journalism and public relations in my undergraduate degree. And it was like, there is a dedicated code of ethics in journalism and a dedicated sort of code of ethics in public relations and comms as well. And that is part of our coursework, that we all are expected to learn this and we are going out and conducting interviews with people and we have to uphold that code of ethics. Now, in practice, in the real world, I'm not... <laughs> wow, journalists, high point of ethics, huh? Yeah, no, it's the, it's the same with photojournalists too. Like, it, there's always going to be people who don't follow the rules exactly. But but it is something that's really ingrained into us. So I, I like I feel quite lucky to be coming into ethnographic fieldwork with this understanding of at least like a journalism code of ethics because when you do speak to people there is sort of like very similar crossover points I guess what I find interesting about this conversation is like a semi-outsider I suppose is that there's no point at which we can kind of review the ethics you know in the sense that like if I was doing work with and I needed like a model release for a photography thing and if it was a sensitive subject, we would often have a clause in the contract being we will review this and review the consent after X amount of time has passed. And I, I, I don't know, I'm, is that something that happens uh, in anthropology? And if not, why? I think that is actually a really good point. I mean, first of all, if you're doing stuff at the university, they will have like the yearly review then like the five-year review so that there is that sort of stuff but normally once the field work's done or the study's done you take the box to say this is done they ask you one last round and it's all over but you make a good point what happens if somebody's views from 30 years ago if you're an older anthropologist and you've done well like you said times have changed and they don't want to be associated with those views anymore i mean they said it, they did it. It was a really important question alex it really annoys me when i read things in the ethnographic present because it communicates some, for me, it communicates some sense of timelessness, as though these people are kind of existing in a point where they still might think the things that they've said. When I know from my own experiences, for instance, I mean, I did, I did field work, ethnographic field work in, in inverted commas, back in 2016, 2015, 2016. And since then, I've still been in touch with the people that I've communicated with, and I'm definitely one of my interlocutors has completely, like almost 180 degree, changed his opinions about what he used to think. And yet his opinions are really valuable and shaped a lot of what I, shaped a lot of the kind of the theorizing that I did around my PhD. And the kind of the answer that I come to is that I always have to say, this is no longer what he thinks, but this was at the time the position that he held. And that's why I think you can, you, that's why, again, you shouldn't use the ethnographic president. You should always treat anthropology as something that's temporally bound. These are fragments of a moment that were experienced by two or more people at a particular time. And their relevance to the kind of present is only understood insofar as we recognize that it is a temporally bound moment. I wonder if we do take that stance, and obviously I feel like we all resonated with what Simon just said because there was some collective nodding going on. When when one goes to learn anthropology and we look back at these things, I feel like sometimes the that temporality is not something that is necessarily kind of focused on too much because I feel like there's a sense to take things in like static concrete. But if everything is just kind of this fragment of a moment, how do we talk about that? How do we build upon it? How do we how do we consider that every time we look back? Considering that, I mean, to turn it back to you, Tim, do you reckon there's anything that could go the other way that biomedicine should consider in its ethical frameworks that anthropology at least tries to, but that it, biomedicine, ought to? 
I mean, I think the dominance of the biomedical worlds, you know, just by the very nature that medical anthropology is, is as a subdiscipline is called medical anthropology, you know, is in some ways kind of subservient to the biomedical realm. But I mean, I think that, you know, it's a difficulty of operating within this space and across disciplines. It's always going to be, you know, a challenge. I was going to go back to what Simon was talking about. When Simon was talking before, I was thinking about informed consent, but I was thinking about informed consent as the quality, not necessarily the form of consent, which might be more important. Simon, just looping back to what you were saying about your research participants or your interlocutors in your fieldwork, thinking about your participant whose views changed over time. And I was just wondering like how, how you might go about that in terms of maintaining that informed consent over the time of your, of your fieldwork with those people that you were working with, your interlocutors. It's a really difficult thing to do. And I think that I was kind of lucky in the sense that his opinions changed post my fieldwork. So I often delimit what I say by saying within the kind of 14 months that I was in Iran, these are the opinions that people had and that those opinions might not necessarily be reflective of a kind of ongoing positionality, but they do represent a particular moment in time. But if, for instance, I wanted to do something new, something that was based on the, on the not like, not that I've been actively collecting data since then, but it all comes back to me for this, this moment of, the, like I said previously, the temporality of the moment. You have to recognize that these things are always bound and delimited by particular kind of notions and particular kind of times. And once that moment is over, whether or not they have relevance to us in the future, it's kind of an open question. And it, it, in some ways, it makes me consider kind of the, the total relevance of anthropology, like how relevant is anthropology of these things? It just flames in a, in a moment, extinguished as soon as we like go past them or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's a difficult and vexed question. Unfortunately, our research isn't the only thing that is bounded and delimited in time. So too is this podcast. So that's all we got time for. I'd like to thank Simon. Thank you. I'd like to thank Carolyn. Thank you. And I'd like to thank Tim. Thank you. And I've been your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Catto and Matthew Fong. And subscribe to The Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.